0: Good morning. This morning's passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through chapter 7 verses 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Lord, before the ark of the Lord. This time Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. This is why, still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who entered the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strong against, our, against us and our God, Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the Ark of Israel's God? The Ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the Ark of Israel's God. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the Ark of God to Ekron, But when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, They've moved the ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together. They said, Send the ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, What should we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. They replied, If you send the Ark of Israel's God away, do not send it without an offering. Send back a guilt offering to him, and you will be healed. Then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. They asked, What guilt offering should we send back to him? And they answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice, corresponding to the number of Philistine rulers, since there was one plague for both of you and your rulers. Make images of your tumors and of your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs? When he afflicted them, didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? Now then, prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the gold objects that you're sending him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark. Send it off and let it go its way. Then watch. If it goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, it is, in the, it is the Lord who has made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. The men did this. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and confined their calves in the pen. Then they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, along with a box containing the gold mice and the images of their tumors. The cows went straight up the road to Bethshamish. They stayed on that one highway, lowing as they went. They never strayed to the right or to the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them to the territory of Bethshamish. The people of Bethshamish were harvesting wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. That day the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. When the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day. As a guilt offering to the Lord, the Philistines had sent back one gold tumor for each city, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The number of gold mice also corresponded to the number of Philistine cities of the five rulers, the fortified cities, and the outlying villages. The large rock on which the Ark of the Lord was placed is still in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh today. God struck down the people of Beth because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? They sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim, saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. So the people of Kiriath Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son, Eleazar, to take care of it. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning. my name's Dick Layman, one of the pastors here at Faith Church, and um, I want to start with a question. Um, what's your reaction internally as you were listening to this particular passage of Scripture being read? Do you find it uh, humorous? Um, true confession. When... Um, you know, we get uh, assignments of uh, who's going to preach what passage. And so I took a moment to take a look at the passage that was assigned to me. When I read this passage, I go, oh no, what am I going to say about this passage of Scripture? Uh, There are a number of things in it that I think are quite humorous if you think about it. So in the passage that talks about this idol, Dagon, uh, being prop, uh, standing next to the Ark of the Covenant and what happens there—it's uh, actually uh, somewhat comical, you know, uh, when you when you hear what happens. And then when you read about what happened to the Philistines and how they start to freak out and they they get this cart, uh, this Ark of the Covenant, transported from city to city to city, and the panic starts to rise in all of these communities. Um, It actually is pretty uh, interesting and strange and amusing. And then when you get to the end of the passage that you read about how they finally got it to a city in Israel, uh, Beth Shemesh, Uh, and somebody took the trouble to take the top off the Ark, and they all looked in it, you know, I had to visualize in my head this movie of Harrison Ford, you know. Uh, And, uh, you know, that movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you haven't seen it, is uh, now over 40 years old. Uh, It's amazing, you know. I remember when I first came out, uh, and so I asked my wife uh, just a couple of nights ago, I said, we haven't watched this movie for decades, but I want to watch it. So Friday night, she and I watched this Raiders of the Lost Ark and we saw this image of uh, what happened to the Germans when they looked into the ark. Now, maybe certainly I think all of us would say this is a very strange passage of scripture. Uh, you read about the tumors uh, all through the cities uh, that are are afflicting the Philistines. Uh, I've read some translations that actually translate that Hebrew word for tumors as hemorrhoids. If you don't know what a hemorrhoid is, I suggest you look it up. Um, But uh, it's not good. It's really not good. Now, we don't know if it's uh, hemorrhoids, but uh, I actually... um, was kind of amused by this whole thing that happened to the Philistines involving the mice and the rats. Uh, many commentators will, will refer to this being a possible outbreak of the bubonic flag, plague. Uh, and so my working title for this sermon while I was preparing for it is Hemorrhoids and the Bubonic Plague. Uh, But uh, as I got into it, uh, I actually found that there's a very, very important message for us to understand about who God is. You know, J.I. Packer says that what we think about God says a lot about us. In fact, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Even a passage like this, as strange as it is, helps us in our thoughts about God. What's the main point behind this passage? You'll see it on the screen. The Lord God is above all gods, and his hand is heavy on all who oppose him. Think about that with me. The Lord God is above all gods, and his hand is heavy. On all who oppose him, you know. This morning in our call to worship, uh, Pastor Godwin made reference to Chapter Psalm 95. Let me just reread verse three. Psalm 95, verse three: For the Lord is a great God, a king, a great king above all gods. Psalm 96, the next psalm, uh, says something similar. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. This is verse four. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families, to the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. You know, as I think about these verses about uh, God, I see within them uh, encouragement to think great thoughts about God, to think about the greatness of our God, how he is above all gods. Last week, Pastor Godwin talked about the weightiness of God's glory and the danger of thinking too lightly about God. Eli and his two sons were thinking too lightly about God. They didn't think enough about the weightiness of his glory, and they suffered the consequences. He's to be taken seriously, reverently, with a healthy fear of God. The Lord is great. And highly praised, he is to be feared above all gods. We cannot take God lightly. And his hand is heavy on all those who oppose him. The weightiness of the glory of the Lord results in his hand being heavy on the enemies of God. You know, in studying this passage, I counted seven different references to the hand of God in this passage. Do you notice that? So with that in mind, I incorporated that into my outline this morning. And I've, I've entitled this sermon, The Hand of God. Now, before we get into our passage in chapter 5, let's review what we read about last week. We took a look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, which described how the Israelites went into battle against the Philistines and were defeated. They lost 4,000 men, and they decided that perhaps they lost because the Lord wasn't with them. That was true. So, to remedy that, they thought that the Lord would be with them if they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. Work for Joshua should work for them, right? But of all the people that they assigned to carry the Ark, Eli's sons, Hophni and phineas not a good idea. So, they lost that battle as well, and 30,000 Israelite soldiers died. And the word of the Lord through Samuel was fulfilled. Hophni, Phinehas died in battle. Ark of the Covenant got captured by the Philistines. And their father, Eli, the priest, died when he heard the news. And Phineas's wife also died while giving childbirth. But before she died, she named the child Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel Indeed, the glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. The Ark went into exile. You know, one of the themes that you're going to see in this passage is that God can do whatever he needs to do. He doesn't need man to take care of problems. He can do it just fine on his own. He doesn't need our help. So when we read in chapter 5... That the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant into their temple of their God, Dagon. They placed it next to their statue. And that's when they discovered the heavy hand of God. Point number one up there is that the hand of God humbles and defeats Dagon. They set up the Ark next to the statue of Dagon as celebrating their victory like a war trophy on display. And their God had defeated the Israelite God. Yahweh is now being held hostage. So they thought. The next morning, they saw that their God, Dagon, had fallen with his face to the ground and was prostrate before the ark as in humble submission to Yahweh. So they set him back up again. Next morning, Dagon had been knocked down again, and this time his head and both his hands were broken off. They looked to Dagon as the source of wisdom. His head was decapitated. They looked to him for the source of power while his hands were cut off. Philistines thought that Dagon had the upper hand, but now they see he has no hands at all. (laughs) Only his torso remained. The hand of God not only humbled Dagon, but he defeated him. The Lord God is above all gods, and his hand is heavy on those who oppose him. Now, how do you feel, as one who worships Yahweh, the God of the Bible, how do you feel, When you see idols or other gods, you ever traveled to other countries where you have a opportunity to see temples of false gods? Perhaps you've gone to other countries such as in India or in Asia or Africa, the Middle East. You see temples of other religions. What do you feel inside when you see them? We read in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Athens and he saw how the city was full of idols. Verse 16, it says he was deeply distressed. You ever felt deeply distressed about those who are in a false religion? Paul went on to speak to the people of Athens and he told them that they worship their idols or gods in ignorance. And he went on to tell them about the God who created the universe, the God who is above all gods, and about his son Jesus and the gospel. That's what Paul did with his feelings of distress. This coming Friday, my wife and I have a chance to go on vacation to Utah. Uh, Susie and I are excited to go visit our son who lives there and his family um, they, uh, they now have a third son, a uh, third child, rather. So they have a girl and a boy and another boy. Uh, his name is Judd Everest. Uh, my son is a big high school football coach, and Judd Everest looks like a big boy. What a name, Judd Everest. Uh, it's in mountain country, so that makes sense. But uh, anyways, it's a joy to visit them. But there are times when I feel weird But I see the Mormon temple, and I see Mormon churches all over Utah. In fact, uh, my son had moved into a new house last year, and it's a beautiful house, and uh, it's it's surrounded by mountains, and it's in a beautiful neighborhood. And and you look out the back, and you can just see it's just wonderful uh, beauty to look at. But there's this Mormon church right there gives me a sick feeling when I see it. One consolation I have when I'm there is that uh, my son's wife's dad is the pastor of a church, the Centerpoint Church in uh, Orem, Utah. And uh, over the 20 years, they've had this tremendous outreach to Mormons. Uh, and so I think 60% of their congregation is about 1,000 a, a people in this church. About 60% of them are ex-Mormon. And so they'll have a baptism in July, and we have the opportunity sometimes to go witness the baptism. We've gone to the Provo River, and they'll have 50 people getting baptized, and the majority of them are people that came out of Mormonism. Just tremendous. Um, So anyways, how do you feel about idols or false gods is an important question because it reveals what you think about God. Does it bother you? it should. But the more important question is how God feels about idols or other gods. This is a major theme of the Old Testament. In Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall not bow down and worship to them. You shall not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And we see all the way through the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, how God feels about false gods, about idols, about worshiping other gods. We know how God feels about idols or other gods. We see that here in how his hand humbles and defeats the false god of the Philistines, Dagon. He not only defeats him, but his hand, the second point, afflicts the Philistines. We read in verses 6 through 12 about three different Philistine cities. The first is the people of Ashdod. And it says in verse 6 that the people of Ashdod are afflicted with tumors. You know, when you read the passage, let's see, it says, um, get the right chapter here. The Lord got, Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and his territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. And so he afflicts them with tumors. His hand was heavy upon them. Now, tumors are abnormal growths. If you want to get grossed out, you can Google that. You can look at pictures of tumors. It's not a pretty sight. Uh, It's pretty awful, in fact. Uh, And in fact, if you can imagine a whole city of people afflicted by tumors, you know, if if any of us have medical issues, we we get upset, right? Can you imagine a whole city of people getting upset with with the medical problem that they have from the tumors? So it terrified them. You know, earlier in chapter 4, verse 8, we had read that the Philistines had remembered or heard about how God, uh, the God of Israel, centuries before afflicted the Egyptians. Uh, They heard that he slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. And indeed, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, it describes it as the Lord's hand doing that to the Egyptians. Here, For the Philistines, their worst fears were being confirmed. He's doing to the Philistines what he did to the Egyptians. And so they moved the ark to the next city, Gath. We read in verse 9, the Lord's, let's see, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. And so the people of Gath are afflicted by the same tumors, causing a great panic. So they sent the ark to the city of Ekron. In the city of Ekron, they cry out, verse 10 They've moved the ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistines' rulers together. They said, send the ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to the place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. So, the people of Ekron afflicted with tumors. Verse 12 says, the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And Then the author of 1 Samuel makes the comment that this went on for seven months. Can you imagine that? Why was God doing this? I've already said, the Lord God is above all gods and his hand is heavy on all who oppose him. The Philistines were enemies of God's people. And as enemies of God's people, they were enemies of God. We read in the next chapter in 1 Samuel 7, verse 13, that the Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The Philistines were idolaters. They worshiped idols. Earlier, I said that the idolatry was a pervasive theme in the Old Testament, but another major theme in the Old Testament is enemies. It's mentioned hundreds of times. Uh, It might make you uncomfortable as you read through the Old Testament, but it's there. You can't get away from it. For example, one of my favorite things to do Uh, in my morning times is to spend time in Bible reading and prayer and I'll often go to the Psalms as a time of real encouragement in my relationship with the Lord and so many wonderful Psalms to read that you can use in prayer. So one of the Psalms, for example, that I've read and I like a lot is Psalm 139. You probably know it well if if you look at the Psalm. Let me just read a little portion of it to you. You know, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down, when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from afar. Where can I go to escape from your spirit? And so I can spend a great time just reflecting on how God is looking down at me. He knows my life. He cares about me. He's, he's actively and intimately involved in all the details of my life. And I can have a wonderful time until I come to verse 19. Verse 19 says, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully, your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you, detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Those are probably not verses that you would put in a picture frame or on a coffee mug, right? What do you do with verses like that? If you know God, and you know how God feels about false gods, false worship, about enemies, about evil, about all that is wrong in this world, then you know how God feels and you understand verses like this. In fact, I would actually say i Certainly don't have the time to mention it here. Uh, but this reflects something of what it means for David to have a man after, be a man after God's own heart. David was the one that defeated the Philistines completely. David, in his heart for God, would write verses like this in Psalm 139. He had a heart for God and had a, a sense of righteousness about what God stood for. The Lord God is above all gods, and his hand is heavy on all who oppose him. You know, reality is, um, we live in a world of enemies. You know, tomorrow, Memorial Day, and uh, we'll think about those who are loved ones who have died in battle fighting enemies for whatever purposes of that particular wartime experience. I've not lost a loved one in a military battle. I've had an uncle that was in the service in World War II and heard the stories he told about how he survived. It was unbelievable uh, on, on uh, B-17 bombers. Um, but anyways, um, you know, we have an appreciation and respect for those who serve in the military and those who have died in service. We also have this intense... Hatred for evil, do we not? Um, You know, this this shooting in Texas. Just awful. You know, and, and, and I'm a counselor, but you won't hear me say that it's just a mental health problem. You know, to go into a school and shoot children is nothing short of evil. What we come to realize as we read our Bibles is that the reality is that ever since Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden, he has been behind the people who oppose God and are enemies of God's people. We even see that in the New Testament, those who oppose Christ and are enemies of the cross of Christ. You know, tears actually came to my eyes when we were singing A Mighty Fortress is a God, because I was just standing there singing the song, visualizing Martin Luther standing there against the opposition to the gospel and taking a strong stand. And he he wrote, he's the one that wrote that song, Mighty Fortress. And he talks about this world as devils, filled with devils. He talks about the enemy, the opposition, and God enabling him to take a stand against that opposition. Wow. We find out in Scripture that there is one called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He's behind all this. Dagon's not the problem. He's just an idol, he's just a statue. Behind this is the God of this world, and he is opposed to God. Well, the Philistines had enough of tumors and the plague that afflicted them, so they send the ark back to Israel. We see that on the screen, the Philistines that send them back to Israel is in chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. And in those verses, we read about the discussion of what they're going to do. They consult with the priests of Dagon and are told to send a guilt offering with the ark, You know, you made that Israel's God mad because you took that Ark of the Covenant. Now, you better send it back and give a guilt offering. You're guilty of that. And so they decide that they're going to make a guilt offering of five gold tumors, five gold mice for each of the five rulers and the cities afflicted. It mentions that in 6, verse 4, in chapter 6, verse 17 to 18. And it mentions the mice that are destroying the land, possibly the bubonic plague. Verse 5 has an interesting statement made by one of the priests of Dagon. He says, Give glory to Israel's God, suggesting that they have felt the weightiness of God's glory on them and that they should not make the mistake the Egyptians made when they hardened their hearts and refused to let the Israelites go. You better let, let them have their their uh, Ark of the Covenant back. We're going to be afflicted like the Egyptians were. So in verses 7 through 12, they devise a plan to make a new cart to be pulled by two milk cows who had recently given birth to calves. And even though they've never been trained to pull a cart and they'd not want to leave their young, they put the Ark of the Covenant in this cart and the gold offerings and they put it on as a test. We'll just see. If this really is uh, the hand of God. And you know what? It was. The hand of God directed the cows right back to the Israelite city. Verse 13 the Beth Shemesh people rejoiced in seeing the ark. They chopped the cart, sacrificed the cows as the burnt offering to the Lord. And in Beth Shemesh, there were people, unfortunately, who thought too lightly of God. They did not appreciate the full weightiness of the glory of God. They looked inside the Ark of the Covenant, forbidden by the law, and so the hand of God afflicts the Israelites too. And the Lord struck down the people in Israel We read in uh, chapter 6, verse 19, God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The hand of God struck them down. And so... The people of Beth Shemesh said, what are we going to do? And they decided to send the ark to kiriath Jearim. Must have been some reason behind that. Actually, you know what they did? <laughs> they asked the people from kiriath Jearim to come down and get it. They weren't going to touch it anymore. You just come down and you take it. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, it says it was taken to Abinadab's house, and they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to take care of it. And there the Ark of the Covenant stayed for many years. Actually mentions 20 years in 7, verse 2, I believe it is, or... You know what happens to the Ark of the Covenant next? In Second Samuel chapter six, we read that King David brought it to Jerusalem, and uh, this is many, many years later. David is now king, and he finally the day comes that okay, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so they go, and they actually transported the cart, the same, the Ark, in the same way with a oxen and cart, and. And all of that. And we read in 2 Samuel 6 that one of the guys that was helping them is named Uzzah. And he put his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. And he was struck down and killed by the hand of God. Actually says in that text that it was his irreverence that killed him. Uzzah evidently thought too lightly about God and the hand of God struck him. Very difficult and sobering moment for David, recorded in 2 Samuel 6. But there were some of the people of Beth Shemesh, if we go back to chapter 6, the end of it. I don't know how many of them, but there were some there who no longer thought too lightly of God. They finally got the full weightiness of God's glory. We see that with the question that they ask, the question that I would like to end our time together today. The question is, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? The tone of the question, the way it's asked, implies that no one is able to stand in the presence of this holy God. Certainly not the idol Dagon, the hand of God just knocked him right over. Certainly not the enemies of God, Philistines discovered he afflicted them with tumors. The Lord God is above all gods, and his hand is heavy on all who oppose him and certainly not those who think too lightly of God, those who don't understand the full weight of the glory of God. You know what? That's all of us. The only way that we can get an understanding of the weight of God's glory is to understand the holiness of God. That's what it says there. Who's able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? God is holy; others, separate. He is uniquely holy with no rivals or competition. There is no one holy like the Lord. There are no other gods before me. He is morally pure. He is totally without sin or imperfection. John says he is light and in him is no darkness at all. When Isaiah was catapulted up in a vision into the throne room of God, he heard the angels exclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And his response is, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips. Confronted with the holiness of God, he became intensely aware of his own sin. True answer to this question is that none of us is able to stand in the presence of this holy God because of our sin problem. In our sinful condition, apart from Christ, all of us are idolaters. We may not see ourselves as worshiping idols like the Philistines did, But with the self on the throne, we don't worship God. With the sins of our earthly nature, Paul tells us, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. Paul calls it idolatry. When you live for yourself and for your own pleasures, you are an idol worshiper. In our sinful condition, apart from Christ, all of us are enemies of God. Paul actually uses the word enemies in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. When you understand the holiness of God, you then can understand why it warrants God's judgment and death on humanity. The hand of God is against us. The Bible calls us being under the wrath of God. Andy, I think in your prayer, it mentions the wrath of God in John chapter 3. It's a New Testament concept. It's actually part of the teaching of Jesus just as much as it is the Old Testament. God is a God of wrath on the whole world that lies under the power of the evil one. A world full of idolaters and enemies. The hand of God is heavy against all who oppose him. But in addition to telling us that God is holy, it also tells us that God is love. But God Who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, sent his son Jesus to die for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the cross, the holiness of God and the love of God meet. If we confess our sins, trust in the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross pays for those sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? No one apart from Christ. But in Christ Jesus. Let me read to you what it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No longer under his wrath. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Who's able to stand? Believers in Jesus. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. In Christ, we are no longer idolaters, no longer enemies, no longer under the wrath of God. His hand is not against us. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were declared righteous by his blood. And so through Christ, we're able to stand in the presence of a holy God. Let's take a few moments of silence and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.